0: Good morning church, it is wonderful to be back with you, been here mostly during the week but uh, have traveled some, got to speak at the uh, National Campus Ministry Seminar for Churches of Christ last week, it was wonderful to be there and uh, you know I've said this before, I don't know if I've said this here, I, uh, I enjoy speaking in different places but there's nothing like opening the word of God with the family of God that you are part of. There's just nothing. I love, I love exploring that with you. I love sharing that with you. I love growing and learning with you. So thank you for that. I also, I celebrate, um, you know, this, we know this to be true all the time, but this week in particular, I just kind of see it in several different places. I love that this is a training and sending church. This is a, a church uh, for whom the mission of God is, is alive and real. And we see this again and again and again in different places Uh, First of all, look at Sarah, thank you so much for what you do day in and day out. A lot of you don't know that our Sunshine School here has every year around this time a Sunshine Education Conference. And I love how the building here, just the physical space, is used to train and send people into the mission that God has for them in everyday life. And so this physical space was used to help encourage people and develop them and grow them in their mission as teachers. Christian education. Thank you, sir, for doing that. I love that that's part of the DNA of our church. And as you know, even though I've been here during the week in the last three Sundays, and this will probably be true a lot of Julys, that we've got uh, Tyler that shared his incredible gift with us last week and Zach before that. This is a training, sending, gifting church where people use their gifts. It's not about just one or two people, but everybody has the opportunity to use and develop their gifts. And of course, in two weeks, these rows are going to be filling up for the next couple of weeks. We'll have our college Sundays coming up in a couple of weeks. And this is a reminder. It's not the only mission, but it is part of the core mission of this church to pour our lives into the next generation and they into us as God continues to train and send people into the world. I just love that. I was thinking, okay, for these next two weeks, got two weeks before that kicks off, what's something that can bridge the gap to where we've been but also speak to where we are right now and where we're going? And I thought there's nothing better in my heart to say, let's lean into one of the core promises of God in Scripture. We're going to be looking at the Abrahamic promise. It's the renewal of it. We'll refer to the original one as well. If you have your Bibles or your devices, um, as we heard Brian somebody say on pixel or paper, you uh, may turn to Genesis chapter 15. We're going to start by reading this text where God renews this covenant promise It's important to realize this is a central promise to the Christian faith. This is not just something that happened back then. It's not just for Abraham. It wasn't just for Israel. It's for all the Israel, all the people of God for us today. So let's look at the scripture. This is the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 1. Over the course of the next two weeks, we'll look at the whole chapter. We're going to start with the first six verses. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven. And number the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as a righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You know, one of the main areas and places that throughout my life that God has used to train me is on a mountain. Any number of them, but I want to share one of them with you pretty early on in my life. This is called Observatory Hill, or O Hill for short. It is behind the University of Virginia. And when we moved up there for law school, this was a place uh, very popular, one of the best places in the whole region to be riding mountain bikes. And I began exploring this area because I had a gift that I had there that first year. Uh, The gift is it was the first time in my life that I actually had a bike that wasn't that 300 pound clunker that you buy at Walmart, right? It, It was a real bike. It was a meaningful one with the good gears and all that kind of stuff. And I remember the first day that I went out there, oh, by the way, I should say this, it was a gift not because somebody else bought it for me, it's a gift because it was our first year of marriage, not his first year of teaching, my first year of law school, and she let me buy the bike. <laughs> so thank you, sweetheart, it was a gift. Now understand, I already had the gift, I already had that bike, and we went out to explore, to kind of get, get it broken into, and I'm telling you, w- within an hour, I had already bent the frame of the bike, <laughs> And I remember walking into the bike shop where I bought it with shame. And he'd seen that look before. And I said, I can't believe I've already bent the bike. He said, look, it happens more often than you think. He said, here's the reality. You go out there thinking I've got this great new bike, but you're the same old rider. (laughs) (laughs) So you got great equipment, but no great experience. God trained me on that hill. I'd love to say that's me on that bike. It's not. (laughs) But he trained me and I have a lot of bumps and scars and bruises for one of the things I've learned there's a lot of wisdom there but I'll say one of the central pieces of wisdom I got on those trails and you know this from other experiences or a bike here's the reality if you want to stay upright you look at where you're going and not where you are do you understand that look at where your head and not where you are some of you have just learned how to drive or maybe you'll be learning to drive soon same wisdom I remember I was driving for the first time through Atlanta. Have you ever driven through Atlanta? And and all of a sudden I'm driving and for the first time in my life, there's huge concrete barriers on either side of me. I've never done this before and all of a sudden I'm freaking out because I'm looking where? Right over the hood and you're all over the road. Here's the wisdom. Look where you're going, not where you are if you want to stay upright. Here's what I've learned. That's true in life too. And I think part of this passage is a central promise that God gives not just to Abram, but to the people of God. And part of what he does in that experience is train us in the same way I was trained on the mountain. Here's the thing. We find ourselves in a world where if you're like me, there's all sorts of things I'm looking at just over the tire. Just on the other side of the hood. There's all sorts of distractions. There's all sorts of uncertainties. That may end up tripping me up. And God says, I want to train you to a different way of looking at the world. And he does it through Abram. He's doing it for him, but he's doing it for all the people of God. So as we get into this text, one of the things that I see is that Abram, at the beginning of the story... By the way, I'll probably use his name interchangeably. We know it's Abram here. It becomes Abraham. But at the beginning of the story, Abram makes the classic mistake because he doesn't follow the main rule, both the biking and in other things, don't look down. And what he's doing at the beginning of the text, he's looking down, he's looking over the hood, over the tire, at fear and uncertainty. By the way, I share these images, Brian, we were just up there in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and one of the things they had us do as part of the Saturday activities is take us over 10,000 feet above sea level up to the top of this mountain in the uh, Sandia Peak in Albuquerque and we ride this tram there. And one of the things they tell you right when you get onto it, and it was funny because we're going up the first one up to the first little tower and I thought this is no big deal because, you know, I kind of see the ground there. You get over the tower and all of a sudden you're over 10,000 feet over this thing. And you know what they told you, right? If you struggle with heights, if you have a problem with heights, what do they tell you? don't look down by the way one of our campus minister buddies got up to the tram he said I'm not doing that the guy was kind enough to drive him an hour to the top of the mountain by car and then an hour back down one of our former AFCers is not really excited about heights and we had some fun Brian going up in the tram there and he made the mistake about halfway through they said look back in the 1950s a plane crashed here and if you look down you can see it now (laughs) they bait you right (laughs) right Now, we're looking for big wings and stuff. There's not. There's just shrapnel on the ground. But he looked down. Now, I say this not just to show cool pictures. Listen, one of the things that you find that is a centerpiece of the Abrahamic story, not just here, but throughout the whole saga in Genesis, throughout the story, what is central is words of vision and sight. Now, we'll look at it mostly here in this text. Someday I want to come back and just kind of a hint there. It's a centerpiece to his whole story. Later on, you just can go study it on your own. Look at the language that Hagar uses to describe God in her experience. And then look at the language that Abraham himself will use at the culmination of his walk with God. It's all about vision and sight. But let's just focus on us here. At least three times in this part of the story, and then we'll see next week it goes on. There are three major visual words In fact, one of them, one of the reasons you use ESV this week is because sometimes it'll bring out, it admits, I'm bringing a clunky translation to hold on to a very important word. Did you catch it? It's twice in six verses. Behold. It's a good Bible word. Behold. A lot of translations don't even capture that anymore, but it's important to see it here. There's visual language. We'll get to a couple of uses of this, behold, and another visual term in a moment, but here's what's... Interesting to me, the first instance of the word behold actually does not come from God. It comes from Abram. Again, this translation captures it. Behold, what what does this mean? Behold, look at this. Pay attention. Wake up and see this. Abram says it to God. What does he say? Behold, I have no child. (laughs) Behold, God, I have no child. God shows up in his story and he says, Abram, don't be afraid. I... I'm your great reward. I'm going to bless you. And Abram says, hold on, behold, take a look, God. Have you paid attention? I don't have a child here. He opens up his interaction with God in struggle and in question. Now, we'll get to this, that God will invite him into a deeper perspective of looking at the world. But can we just pause for a moment and say, Aren't you grateful that God does not condemn him for where he starts? He starts by looking over the tire. He starts by looking over the hood at fear and uncertainty. And you see it in his struggle and his questions. You see it in where he's looking. Behold, look, I don't have a child here. The the other thing that you see in this context fear and questions. By the way, just again, this is coming on the tales of great messages that have come before. To unpack fear and anxiety more deeply, I encourage you to go back a couple of weeks and listen to what Zach talked about. But let's just talk about a couple of things that come right out of this text and this story. Abram has a lot of reasons to struggle with fear, he finds himself in a brutal and violent world. The story that comes right before this passage his nephew Lot has been kidnapped by foreign kings and he has to engage in battle to go get him back that's the kind of world he finds himself living in so it's a fearful world but honestly what a lot of the commentators will talk about is that unlike many places in scripture where God shows up and says don't be afraid there's no imminent peril right now actually Abram when he saw that happen he grabbed 300 plus men and went and got him back he's not afraid about that moment what is what is the fear that's Attacking him that God's speaking into in this moment. Perhaps it's the fear that will come up in his question more. The fear of his legacy. What's going to happen because I don't have a child? I like the way a lot of writers put it. Sometimes God's presence alone is enough for him to have to say, don't be afraid. The structure of this passage, it breaks up into two parts. And both of them start out with this kind of fearful doubting struggle and then God comes back with an astounding staggering promise and here's the thing we know not just here but throughout scripture when God shows up in mighty and powerful ways one of the first things God has to do is say don't be afraid he does it here because he shows up in a vision to Abram and he says don't be afraid we've seen it with Jesus and a bunch of examples one is when he steps into the place of death and he's about to do a staggering powerful move to raise jairus's daughter from the dead what does he say to the crowd don't be afraid jesus walks on the water you remember that story and it's more than jesus being having power over nature the sea in the old testament and in hebrew world is a symbol for the chaotic disordered powers of the world and jesus just takes a stroll on the enemy that we all want to defeat They are paralyzed with fear. And what does Jesus say? Don't be afraid. In fact, what are the first words out of the angel's mouth to all of the disciples who show up in the most staggering event in all of human history, the resurrection of Jesus? What do the angels say to the disciples who go to the empty tomb? Don't be afraid. Isn't it marvelous that even though God will invite Abram to something more, he does not condemn him from where he starts? You bring your fears to him. You can invite God to actually enter into and do what he does here. Speak into the fears that we face when we're looking around the world or our own hearts. I also appreciate that God invites our questions. Again, when he's looking over the tire and he's looking over the hood, he brings his fear, but he also brings his questions. Did you catch his question? Look at it. Verse 2 God says, I'm your great reward. I'm blessing you. And he says, what will you give me? That's a strange question if you know the story. What will you give me, God? What do you mean, what will you give me? He's been walking with him for a couple of chapters here. And part of what he's given him is incredible financial blessing. Go look in previous chapters. Abram has so much stuff. He and Lot can't live in the same place. God is pouring his blessings out on him. In fact, watch this. This is powerful throughout The whole Genesis narrative, when God blesses the patriarch, it's a great thing to be around them. Picture a cup that God keeps pouring into. Everybody that's around gets blessed. He has incredible financial blessing. What what will you give me, God? He gives him financial and material blessing. What will you give me, God? God has given him military power and might. Again, he didn't flinch. When they come and kidnap his nephew, Lot, he assembles 300 men, goes, fights the battle, brings them back. He wins. But listen to the heart of a man who's struggling and he understands what we all understand in this world. Money isn't enough. Power isn't enough in this worldly sense of the word. He's longing for a legacy, a purpose, something to step into the mission that God planted in him. He didn't create this. God called him to a legacy where he's going to have children and he's going to have a blessing that's going to bless the world. More on that in a moment. And I love it, don't you, that God honors the questions of faith and not just the declaration of it. In fact, one of the things that you see here, Abram's often called the father of faith. And here we have a central piece of what he does with God is he brings questions to the conversation. Studying this on Wednesday night, we're seeing it in the book of Habakkuk as well. We studied that book because God gives a prophetic book that doesn't... He inspires not just uh, answers, but questions. The whole book is framed with complaints and questions, struggling with God. And one of the things we saw there, we see here as well. There is a difference. Pay attention to this. There is a difference between questions that reflect a disbelief that God's able to do what he's said he's going to do and questions that say, I'm all in, God. I just don't get it. And you've got to help me bridge the distance between my head and my heart. I think that's what's going on with Abram when he's struggling here great example of this is the beginning of the book of Luke you see a little bit of different treatment between the question that Zachariah asks as a priest and young Mary asks when God gives them pretty much the same incredible promise and ironically the faithful question comes from the teenager and not the seasoned priest You've heard the story before, right? God shows up to Zechariah and he says, you're going to have a child in your old age. And Zechariah asks, how can this happen? And you get the sense that, God, how can you do that? Can you really do this? And God trains him and challenges him by striking him mute until the child comes. How different it is, the feeling when The angel comes to Mary and says, you're going to have a child. And she says, how can this be since I've not been with a man? And he says, the spirit of God will overshadow you and the child will be his. And she says, paraphrase, whatever you want, God, I'm in your hands. There is a faithful questioning that says, God, I'm all in, but I don't get it. And isn't it marvelous that the great examples of faith in scripture don't just model good decisions and faithful statements, but faithful questions. By the way, that's important, especially important for this community right here. At that conference last week, we had some breakout classes, and I went to one, was led by a friend of mine named Micah. He's got a brilliant mind for God. And one of the things that he is gifted to doing is helping people who struggle with their faith, witnessing for evidences to believe in God. He's a deep thinker, and he uses that well. And he shared about his experiences. One of the things he's been doing the last few years that I love He's actually been researching, especially with college students, why it is that some of them leave the faith. I'm not just talking about going to a different church. They, they leave and step out of oh, the faith they grew up in altogether. And he interviews them. He said, I'm not beating you up. I'm not trying to change your mind right now. I just want to walk with you, but I want to learn from you what it is that made you leave. I wrote this down when he said this. He said the number one reason consistently that people give him, students give him, is this and I quote the churches we were part of did not allow for the existence of problems questions and complexity churches we were part of did not allow for the existence of problems questions and complexity that grieves my heart because some churches might not do it but the founder of the church does founder of the church the god of the universe says I'm good with your questions now listen He will invite him to go deeper, but he does not condemn him for where he is. Abram starts by looking down. And God invites him instead to look to God's promises instead of to the present moment. Now watch how God does it. He redirects his gaze. Again, the Abrahamic story is all about vision and sight. And the word comes up again two different ways. First of all, it says, behold The word of the Lord. Behold the word of the Lord. God says look at the word of God. Behold the word of the Lord it says came to Abram. In fact that little phrase is repeated twice. The first line of the story says the word of the Lord came to Abram. And it's a visual term. It doesn't say in a book or in an idea. It says the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. God says I want you to see i want you to look at the promise that i have rooted into your life and into the world now this would be a great place to insert a little message a little part of the message on reading your bible and i'm all about that dig into the word of god absolutely but he has a specific word that he has in mind here behold the word of the lord what is the word of the lord that god affirms and reaffirms in this moment it's called the covenant promise This is so central to our faith. Sometimes we read this as if it was just for the Old Testament stuff. No, everything comes off of this promise. It's reaffirmed here. Let's look at it back in chapter 15, chapter 12. This is the word I think he's unpacking. The message he's giving to Abram. And he gives it to him again. And he reaffirms it again. It is the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred. In your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will, listen to this, be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you. All the peoples of the earth shall be blessed in you. This is the word of the Lord that God wants him to pay attention to. It is a promise, and it is a central covenant promise. I love the way I heard one guy describe this one time. He said, you know the the difference between a contract and a covenant? You know the difference of this? Look at James, you know this. Difference between a contract and a covenant. Contracts are agreement based on two or more parties, based on mutual distrust. Right? Contract. We're writing this because we know somebody will probably break it somewhere down the line and we want to work it out in advance. Covenant is an agreement on two parties or more based on mutual trust. We're covenanting something that we're calling people to lean into and to trust. And God says, I want you to know the centerpiece of the word of God is a covenant promise he made with Abram. And follow this. We'll get into this a lot more next week as we dialogue between here and the book of Romans But the covenant promise of God is, he says, I'm going to bless you, not just so you can sit back and be blessed, but so that you will be, and it's a y'all, you all will be a blessing for the whole planet. All nations of the earth will be blessed. It's not intended just for Israel or just for a few people or one nation. God says, I'm going to bless the covenant people and I will find a way on my life to fulfill that covenant in such a way it will literally remake the world. I love that Tyler, you unpacked some of this last week, that sin itself, we broke the world. We undo and disorder all of creation, but God says, I'm going to redo it, I'm going to reclaim it, I'm going to restore it, but I'm going to do it through my covenant promise and astoundingly through my covenant people. I'm telling you, it is so hard when I look around the world and see all the stuff over the front of my hood or my tire to look up and realize God isn't finished fulfilling his covenant to remake the whole world and using you and me to be part of that reclamation project. He says, Abram, behold the word of the Lord. When everything around you wants you to pull you in a different direction, behold the covenant promise of God. Here's the other thing he does. It's another visual term. He doesn't use the word behold. He uses the word look. He says, look at the stars. is this is powerful? Get this in mind, by the way. There is no person there yet. There is no child there yet. But he said, I want you to see it. I want you to visualize it. Look at the stars. Because even though there is not a child in the story now, there will be, and not just one, there will be descendants like the stars in the sky especially when you weave that in not just with the physical work that God did in his life and his biological line when you see Paul saying we're all grafted in to the family line of Abraham by sons and daughters of faith then all of a sudden that story concept of how big it was But he says, I want you to just get a hint of it. Just a flavor of it. Look, look, look at the stars. In other words, part of what God calls us to do when we're tempted to look over the hood is look and see a world that does not exist just yet. At least in our visual perception. And importantly, start living into that world. Into that promise as if it were already here. That's part of what happens with the resurrection of Christ. It's already here. Live into it. Oh, how powerful our lives would be if we lived already into the promises that God already makes. Whether or not we see it fully yet. One of my friends, a man named Luke, taught me this a long time ago. I love the way that he lived his life. Man, of incredible faith. And one of his gifts is he would tell anybody anywhere about Jesus. He would tell anybody anywhere about Jesus. He was really bold. I got to meet him and know him. He was a, he was a, a, a minister of one of the uh, non-denominational um, parachurch campus ministries that were in town. We did some things together when we were in Lubbock. And I remember one time he told a story about how he just met. I mean, he just kind of brushed against um, uh, one of the assistant coaches for tech. And so he said, man, I told you, anybody anywhere. He said, he, he went up to the athletic complex <laughs> And he went into like the training facility and he said, Yeah, I know so and so. He just name drops the coach. And he said, You know, I'm a minister here. I just want to go and just kind of give some encouragement to some of the players. His goal was to get to the starting quarterback of Tech at that time and tell him about Jesus. It might have been Cliff Kingsbury at that time. I can't remember, but it was, it was a while back. So he said, You know, I want to do this. He got all the way in. He made an impact on the team. You know why? So I'll never forget. He's living into the promise. He might always see it, but he's living in the promise. This is what he said. I'll never forget it. He said, you know, Scripture talks about how the Holy Spirit convicts people of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Convicts people not just of wrong, but the right way to go. He said, Jesus says the Holy Spirit teaches and reminds things that Jesus said. He reveals things. He said, this is what I, so this is what I think. He said, every time I talk to somebody who does not know Jesus, about Jesus, he says, I know they they can choose whatever they want. They can reject it. But he said, this is what I believe. When I'm talking to them about Jesus, there is a voice somewhere inside of them that says what he is saying is true. (laughs) Isn't that great? He said, I believe every time I'm talking about Jesus, there's something inside of that other person that says what he is saying right now in this moment is absolutely true. He lives with boldness and confidence into the promise of God, even when he can't quite see it. And that's the invitation here. Again, we'll unpack it more next week, but Part of what I want you—nothing in the story changes from where he starts in fear and uncertainty, other than God reaffirming the promise He's already made. You hear me? He already had the gift. He's just crashing and burning a little bit. So God just say, "Let me remind you of the gift you've already got." He reaffirms the promise, and then the famous line is, "Abraham trusted God. He believed God. He trusted in God's faithfulness, and God credited it to him as righteousness. Call it divine credit." It's a great move here. God gives him divine credit for trusting in God's faithfulness, and he calls that righteousness. Again, let's be careful not to make that a stained glass word. Righteousness, we can unpack, we'll unpack it more as we dialogue with Paul uh, next week. But I love the way N.T. Wright says this, where he says, "Don't, Don't just translate it that way, or else we miss it. That is a covenant word. And righteousness is something that is declared by an authority. So let's hear this. It is something declared over you by an authority. Does it have moral implications? Yes, but we make it out. Righteousness is doing good stuff. Not that. Righteousness is a state of being that is declared upon us with someone who has the authority to do it. And So he says, what better way to read this is Abraham trusted in the faithfulness of God and God credited it. As the way that he belonged to the covenant. As a declaration of belonging to the covenant. In other words, Abram, you're in this covenant promise and family. Why? Because you've done great things, as Paul will unpack. Because you've followed the law and you've been circumcised. No, none of that's happened yet. I'm trusting in God's faithfulness. Therefore, I belong to this glorious covenant. Follow this. It's a belonging. God says you're in. You're in. Ah, not going to heaven. You're in the covenant promise that God is going to transform you. And listen to this. The entire world through you, really, through the one who started the covenant. And so in the Old Testament, we talk about it this way. You're in the covenant. Righteousness is about being in the covenant family. In the New Testament, Paul loves these two words. In Christ, we are declared to belong in the covenant community. How do we get that? By trusting in the promise of God. It's staggering. That Abraham doesn't have to do anything. I love the way Wright unpacks this when he says, look, Paul all but admits in the New Testament that what he's doing here, Paul's words, is God is justifying making someone belong to the covenant community who is ungodly. Romans 4, God justifies the ungodly. He lets into the covenant community the ungodly. In other words, the tradition was, and Paul's language here makes it really clear. At this point in Abram's journey, he's still probably fairly thoroughly pagan in his theology. He knows a little bit about Yahweh, but not a lot. For 75 years, he was steeped in the pagan culture all around him. God declares the ungodly to be righteous, not because he has it all together. Because he's trusting in the covenant promise of God. Here's the thing. God still does that. Again, we'll unpack it more next week. But if you ever wonder, do I belong in a church family? Do I belong in a covenant community? Do I get to stay in the covenant community? You do. But it's not about your godliness. It's not about how good you are. You are declared by the authority of the king of king. When I trust his faithfulness, I belong. That's what it's all about. When I go ahead and do what Tyler said last week, I just go ahead and kill this body, kill this spirit, kill this life that's dominated by the tyrant of sin. And I'm going to be declared in the covenant community by the one who resurrects me in Christ. You don't belong here because you're godly. Let's just give up on that. Now listen, God doesn't leave him that way. This is the power of this. Abram doesn't just get in and we just kind of skate around and do what we want. No, it is in the covenant relationship that we are actually transformed and renewed. Abram is a different man at the end of the story than he is here in this moment. And so are we when we come into Christ. But isn't it glorious that it's not about our godliness, our goodness, and our smarts, and our intelligence, or our heritage, or how well we've nailed down all of the nuances of church. It is about the faithfulness of Christ. trust that and then we get in not to heaven in the covenant family that God will use to be transformed and transform the world so I end with this what is the posture of faith that we get from Abram it's not that he did all the things right Boy, he failed all over the place. He laughed in the face of God. What is the posture of faith? Posture of faith says, God, I'm trusting that even when I can't see it over the hood or over the tire, that the future is in your hands, the covenant is in your hands, my life is in your hands, this church and community is in your hands, and I can't even see what you're doing with it yet. It's the posture of faith. My favorite pictures of that is a woman that we chose to name our daughter after. A couple of months ago, you got experience of meeting the guy that we named Luke after. All of our children have a first name that connects with Christ. And the middle name is someone tangible in life that tries to follow Jesus. And we say, follow them as they follow Christ. When we were college students, one of the ministries that we did is we would go, as AFC does here, goes to different mission points. Well, one of them was right there in the city, and we would go to an assisted living center. And we met this incredible woman named Elise Robinson who'd been going there or things like that for 30 years. In her 80s then, somewhere in mid-30s, her husband got muscular dystrophy, I believe it was, and so he was paralyzed from his neck down. She didn't need assisted living, he did, so she would come every day in that place. She had faithfully walked with her husband for three decades. They couldn't go hiking and those kind of trips or biking or any of those stories, a lot of things that married couples could do. She faithfully loved her husband beautifully. I remember one day, you remember this, Melanie. I was sat down and I said, you are a woman of such incredible faith. I would love you to talk to me about what that looks like in your life, especially your prayer life, because you've gone through a lot. How do you get through that? I'll never forget what she said. She said, you know what I do? She said, I hurt a lot. My body hurts at this age a lot. There's a lot of things we've gone through. And she said, I give it all to God, Right. Picture you, Rand. you're a great prayer warrior, right? Give it all to God, just like Abram. Does it sound like Abram? I give it to him, God. Questions, what are you doing here? Behold, kind of prayer. She gives it all to God. And then she says, when I'm done, I can let it go because I trust that it is in his hand. By the way, it's not, you know, just goes away. She has to get up the next morning and do it again. Gets up the next morning and does it again. She gives it to God. She gives it to God as forcefully as she needs to. And then she trusts for that day. Whatever the answer is, whatever the response is, whatever she can see or not see, it's in the hands of the promise making, promise keeping covenant God. That is the posture of faith. Father God, that's our prayer that we as a community of your people model the faith not just of those in the past what we're looking towards is the author and perfecter of our faith Jesus who never wavered who fully surrendered to every step of your way trusting father help us to trust in what we can't see right here right now help us to be a community that allows for the struggle but also is passionate about where you are going and we just want to be a part of it to be transformed but also the power of your Holy Spirit to transform our communities in ways we could never see. Father, that's what we seek, and we need your power to do it. We are in your hands. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.